Arts Roundup with Simon Burton on Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm no longer paralysed by a bad review, but I got quite a lot of them. Another ten years went by before I published a book of poetry. And sometimes I think the setbacks are helpful. And I think on the whole I've gained from publishing later rather than sooner in the field of writing that really matters most to me, which is poetry. A voice you might recognise as one of Cambridge's great lights, Clive James. I'm Simon Burton and welcome to Cambridge Arts Roundup here on Cambridge 105 Radio. An hour of local arts coverage where today we'll look at the career of television critic Clive James and find out what he was really like as a creative man and poet living in Cambridge from his close friend and neighbour, journalist Anne Garvey, and a keen supper on his journalistic discourse, Phil Day, who's led a career in business and government and prepares young people to enter the film business. Clive James, as many of you will know, was an Australian critic, journalist, broadcaster, poet and writer who lived and worked in Cambridge from 1962 until his death in 2019. He began his career specialising in literary criticism before becoming a television critic for The Observer in 1972, where he made his name for his wry, deadpan humour. During this period, he earned an independent reputation as a poet and satirist. He achieved mainstream success in the UK, first as a writer for television and eventually as the lead in his own programmes. Clive James' humour addicted a broad section of the population to his broadcasts on television and radio, and it was all shaped by him becoming president of the Cambridge Footlights during his time at Pembroke College as a person who certainly knew what a good punchline was. Anne and Phil let me in on a few stories of his time in the local neighbourhood. Anne, as his friend, you must have had a very interesting relationship with someone who the world was intensely interested in. I'm only sorry that I met Clive, really, at the end of his life. But on the other hand, I might not have met him at all then, because he did... Operation a very starry zone, and I think he was pretty pleased to be coming round here to Hartford Street and joining in, mucking in, just being another dinner guest. When in fact, he had at one stage kind of commanded nations and presidents, and as you say, Frank Sinatra <laughs> in interviews. Uh, you had a story about um, Clive and Frank Sinatra, tell us about that. Yeah, it was really, I remember seeing it when I was younger. It was Clive made these documentaries way before I realised what a intellectual giant he was. And so I just re-watched it on YouTube. And the programme was about Frank Sinatra opening at this huge resort in Australia where he hadn't been back for 15 years uh, when he was really chased out of the country. Apparently he upset the whole nation and had trouble getting out because the unions wouldn't refuel his private plane. So he came back, so the story was about the opening of this resort, and would Frank turn up or not? And he turns up, and Frank Sinatra did very few interviews, and when he did, he was quite aggressive, as you could imagine. 
But Clive was there to um, you know, just act as master of ceremonies and he got 10 minutes with Frank Sinatra and it was wonderful. It was just, um, I think because he just asked Frank Sinatra the questions he wouldn't normally be asked, like, do you still love singing? Um, what lyrics are important to you? And, and Frank really opened up in 10 minutes more than he would have done, I think, for, you know, for more famous interviewers. He was always a populist. broadcaster I mean you never got this constant uh, my husband calls it the 15 second rule if anyone's been at Cambridge University or indeed Oxford University within meeting them they apparently always mention they've been at Cambridge (laughs) University or Oxford University none of that with Clive I mean in fact I think a lot of people would be surprised to know he was at Cambridge University he was very very much a man of the people from a background which was not just an ordinary working-class background, but in fact quite a difficult background. You knew him really well and enjoyed his company as a dinner party guest and conversationalist. What kind of things did he used to get up to um, in the Cambridge bubble when he came round? Well, (laughs) he was really good fun and I noticed about him, and I've met quite a lot of people who are marvellous communicators, be they priests, uh, you know, who do fabulous sermons or particularly lecturers, but afterwards they really can't connect on an ordinary level. Well, Clive James was not one of them. He gave the the same attention to you as they were, he would have to a star. And it was a really lovely that he summoned all his wit and energy for these little encounters in a family context. And I really gave him a big note, as the Australians say, for that, because it's so atypical. A lot of people who have had a masses of adulation are just so sated with it that they can't really manage to just be entertaining with... Phil and Simon, they've got to have... They Literally, I've seen people just scanning around to see if there's anyone else, you know, there to make it worth their while giving it the energy. But that wasn't him, no. He came to London on a boat from Australia via um, Greece and Egypt and had um, an amazing time on on this boat. Uh, And then he arrived in London and he spent some time in London before coming up to Cambridge as a mature student. He was obviously contemporary of both Eric Idle and and Jermaine Greer. Do you know much about their relationship? I don't, actually. I mean, I actually know Jermaine Greer through um, personal contacts, but they're always a little bit wary of one another. Uh, But, you know, oh, Clive, (laughs) yeah, or Jermaine, eyes to heaven. So you never sort of went any further. But you might know a bit more about his early Well, not so much the early days, because I haven't read those memoirs, but certainly the early days in Cambridge. And, um, you know, one thing really impressed me, that when I came to this fair city 30-odd years ago, you you get the impression as an outsider, it's very much town and gown, and town is pressed with their noses up against the window of of, uh, the gown, which, you know, the intervening years have shown me that's just not the case. But I just felt the students who come here 
you know, they're here for three years, it's half the year, they're working like crazy, so this glittering prize, as mm. Frederick Raphael mm. called it, this glittering prize is there for 18 months, and a relatively very small number of Cambridge graduates stay on. But Clive, who could have gone anywhere in the world, stayed on in Cambridge. He, he describes in Unreliable Memoirs the, 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 the third book, which is May Week was in yeah. June at Cambridge, how he enjoyed the company. I mean, he had a kind of magical time with the footlights and all of these smokers, mm-hmm. which, of course, he, he eventually became president of the footlights. Mm-hmm. But with Eric Idle, he, he thought that he was a fantastic star right from the beginning Indeed. and that he would go on to great things but he i mean he describes a a, a very um, amusing incident at the footlights when eric idle was doing a, uh, a sketch and clive james was responsible for loading up a flaming torch with fluid with 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 the petrol that you needed for it to, for it to last all the way through the sketch and of course what happened was eric idle lit the torch and he did his prometheus act or what have you and just before he got to the punchline the the torch went out because there wasn't <laughs> enough fluid uh, in it and so the punchline was ruined but apparently it was it was hilarious at the end of it and he spent lots of time with Eric Idle as he said in his book climbing college walls going into parties mm. and having a lot of fun with the footlights. I think Clive really was a great romantic just to look look at his overall personality I mean even when he was uh, in in let's say straightened circumstances you know really not able to go out and about in the same way that he had although he did go to London even when he was ill because I I once came back from London with him and he kept talking all the way and I think it probably took him a week to recover because he wasn't Mm -hmm. well then but he was such a romantic person and when he'd look around um, a family set up like ours and just see the personalities and um, see who he thought someone was like. And he was saying, Stephen, he's the rock, isn't he? He's the rock of Gibraltar. <laughs> and he told me that my son Jack, said, I've interviewed Ben Affleck. I think Jack's a lot better looking than Ben Affleck. And he's certainly a lot nicer. And it was just so fun having these things poked into um, every, everyday life. Quite naturally. Yeah. Uh, and he read avidly the English moralists and, and half the canon of English literature oh, yeah. and European thought and literature. And he drew from that, didn't he, for his uh, poetry and his love life and everything, because he, yeah. he saw himself as somebody who wanted to be a creative poet, didn't he? Certainly, yeah. Yeah. certainly. I think uh, his, his cre- creative poetry is, is very romantic. And I think that's sometimes where he he didn't want to be disappointed in life he wanted to make the very very best of it and and he was a sort of visionary socialist in his early days but i think uh you know when you had to engage with things like possibly the tragedy that is climate change he found it very hard to sort of face up to how bad it was and that I remember being here one day and that caused a lot of controversy and actually quite uh, a difficult uh, atmosphere. He took it on the chin, I mean, he really did. He, just, you, he was somebody you could openly criticise. I, I thought, you know, it was a bit much given the, um, the, the setting, but 
On the other hand, people have a right to the, everyone to their own opinion. It's very unfashionable now to have that view. And uh, he, he had to take it. But um, I think he just wanted the world to be um, a, a more perfect place than it, than it was, both now and in the future. That was my feeling about it. And his journalistic career, I mean, you, 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 you were interested in the articles which you wrote. Did you read a, a great deal of those? Because he wrote for a, a, a huge number of publications during yeah, his career, didn't he? Yeah, it was generally the Guardian and the Observer ones I read, and they ranged, you know, they were always, you know, very pithy, um, you know, really hit the mark with, you know, without being, you know, particularly nasty, I would say. No. They bit, but they, you know, they weren't nasty. You know, he would write about Gerald Ford, you know, the American president that can anybody remember anything he ever did, you know, apart from pardon Richard Nixon. <laughs> and when you think of it, can you remember? <laughs> so things like that. But also some... Um, you know, he, you know, obviously, you know, very, very funny. But if you read the article he wrote about the Manchester bombing, mm. heartbreaking, absolutely mm. heartbreaking. And it was an article like no one else had written about it. Um, you know, well worth yeah. a read. And uh, um, the one, he, you know, he did get a lot of flack for the requiem for Princess Diana. Yeah, yeah a victim in a way. It was Clive there of his own romanticism, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that we should all do is get ourselves a copy of Cultural Amnesia. Yeah. It's a really <laughs> challenging read, but when you start reading that essay, it is fantastic stuff. I mean, I, uh, I, I haven't... I've only read one essay, and I rather kick myself for not having mm. uh, done more to... Equip, because you, you're really delving into the thoughts of somebody who who had himself delved into a lot of fantastic literature and at Cambridge he wrote for Varsity for the Cambridge Review and <coughs> numerous um, other magazines and he really developed his writing skills um, by doing reviews first of all which he did for lots of magazines he'd been doing that you know since he was in Australia and his um, early journalistic career and he developed those skills but he said that two-thirds of everything he submitted was published which is a huge amount of material that actually was published that he submitted so he was a very successful writer you know and um, both in both before, but he Cambridge really brought him out of himself as a writer. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was doing a lot in um, in Sydney University. I know Jermaine Greer tends to think that all her work and study and development there has been rather kind of ignored, and it might have been the same with Clive. But he didn't tend to moan about things mm. at all. So he would uh, he would probably just take it on the chin. But. Uh, as you're saying, Simon, he was, say, two, six years, possibly, when he started at Cambridge, older than other people, which at that time in your life is quite a lot of writing. Sure. Um, I mean, he loved, when he was at Cambridge, he, he did things like lodging in the, the Eagle pub that we all, you know, he had a, he had a, a grotty room somewhere upstairs uh, um, at the Eagle, and he was involved in all of these comedy clubs and smokers, but he also um, loved observing people, and he did things like um, finding out, you know, what other students were doing, and this included one student who'd effectively 
given up his studies in order to study voodoo instead of his course. <laughs> um, but, but also, uh, he described himself in those terms as well, to a certain extent, because he, he says in his book repeatedly that he never did any work at Cambridge until the last moment, you know. So he spent all of his time writing and, and not um, working on his academic career that hard at all because he was more into the action of what was going on in the city rather than um, into his coursework, which he tended to neglect. But um, uh, it, because he was so important in the footlights, it didn't really seem to matter that much, did it? You know? And, and of course, he spent this insane amount of time at the cinema you know? <laughs> in, in the books. And it was three films a day. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he loved Wagner as well as jazz yeah. um, because. He, he liked he liked very much the opulence of Cambridge with its wonderful architecture, which he describes mm-hmm. in his books. You know, with uh, you know um, great praise, the laundry service, the the backdrop of classical music, and then also his love of jazz as well, because that was something else that you were talking about earlier. Um, yeah. And that he 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 even met Theolonis Monk at Cambridge at the yeah. Blue Boar, um, and he he loved Duke Ellington and various yeah. other um, people. We're going to play some of his jazz a, a little bit oh later. great because yeah. he was in cultural amnesia he talks about his favorite tracks and of course he was a big fan of uh philip larkin the poet yeah. i tried to read uh, on becoming rain his volume about philip larkin which i think philip larkin is to me a more obscure poet than than clive and in fact I was just I was just saying to Phil before we began the discussion, you can just open one of Clive's poems and he brings you straight in to the little scene that he's thinking about and then opens up again. So although they can be very very subtle, you do know exactly where he's driving at, which isn't true of all modern poetry, is it? Because he'd always been interested in English literature. I bet he'd sort of read so much more than the average student. Oh. <laughs> I mean, for heaven's sake, we were just reading what's on the syllabus, and then he oh, would have yeah. had all that. As far as the, you know, the, 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 music, the music goes with Wagner and um, jazz, um, I, I was surprised he was one of the very few guests on Desert Island Disc to appear twice. Oh, really? And so on, on the first one, um, it was Wagner, it was jazz, um, it was Mozart, it was Maria Callas. His favourite track he would take away, um, Baby Love by the Supreme. Oh, really? And, you know, just speaks about it eloquently and, yeah. But he also spent um, time visiting the film industry um, at, in London and also getting um, involved in um, the production of documentaries, which um, continued his obsession with the moving image. Didn't mm. it? And then that led to his career as a, cri- a critic yeah. to, uh, in television. Yeah. I think he had, as Phil hinted uh, earlier, he had such a um, grounding in in. C- in cinema, I once asked him actually if uh, if he felt that um, he'd been altered by fame, because he was famous, wasn't really? he? Yeah. Uh, and he said, "Well, I think for that answer, I have to turn to the great Hungarian philosopher Kurt Douglas," <laughs> and he said, "It's not you." that changes with fame. It's other people's attitude to you mm. that changes. Yeah, yeah. 
you're mm. still you. Mm. And just a way of putting things the whole time. Actually, just, just when we're on these um, uh, film stars, uh, he, he told me once that he thought um, the worst thing you could do in an interview would be to try and entertain the entertainer. What do you mean by that? And he said, well, you know, if they're there because they're stars, because they do entertain, because they glamour people, they don't want you there (laughs) eclipsing them. They're all very fragile. And he said, well, I think the worst instance I have, this is Clive speak, was I was interviewing um, Paul Newman. And I thought I'd make a little joke about the Paul Newman sources. Do you remember yeah, those remember special well, yeah, sources yeah, he was yeah. making? He made this, I'm sure, quite funny uh, joke about it. Mm-hmm. And he looked up and there was Paul Newman with this hatchet face. <laughs> Interview was wound up fairly quickly. Oh, dear. Yeah. <clears throat> he saw his own personal life as very much... Um, uh, um, living in the the cafes of Cambridge, he, mm. he was an artisan, wasn't he? In his own mm. life, you know, he was. Um, you know, on the one hand, he was this person who who, who dealt with famous people and celebrities mm. and, and television. But in his own life, he was someone who who enjoyed being in the copper kettle, the whim, you know, mm. uh, the, the cafes in Cambridge, and being this poet and writer. And of course, in his documentary about Paris, which I recently yeah. watched, you know, what a home for him that would have been. That. Yeah. He said that's what he dreamt of as a young man with other writers to be in these cafes on the left bank. Yeah. No, it is it is a shame. I, I didn't know him at that time. And have the um, the cafes sort of um, ebbed out of our lives? Although perhaps they're coming back now. The the cafe mm-hmm. scene uh, that you could. I know the whim. What what I used to go. Do you remember that, Phil? It was upstairs where. Um, uh, at the end of um, Green Street, where it meets Trinity Street, and there'd be a lot of, you know, really interesting people in there, all sitting on their own. Turn out to be Bertram Russell. And that kind of <laughs> <laughs> he went um, famously. He gives a tremendous account in his um, in um, May it was in June of going on a ski trip to Davos, and then um, later told the world about it, comically suggesting that he was going to file a lawsuit against the owners of the ski resort for the terrible accident that he had. We're going to hear that now. But a short version of the story will sufficiently indicate that I was blameless in the matter. I was on a black run at Davos, and it could be argued that I shouldn't have been there, owing to my inability to turn in any direction at any speed. But no attempt was made by the responsible authorities to ascertain this fact before I started my descent. And the run was open to the public. There were signs to say that the run was open, and the signs had been placed by those in charge of the resort. The run was needlessly steep. Those in charge had bulldozers available, and it was their responsibility to level the mountain during the night. They had not done so, and I was doing 75 miles per hour when I took off from a bump and landed on my nose a hundred yards further on. The manufacturers of the ski bindings had done their job. With those manufacturers, I have no quarrel. The skis came off as they should have done. But the loops of my ski poles failed to detach themselves from my thumbs as I hit the snow, which was packed tight. No attempt had been made to loosen it, and I therefore continued going downhill at high speed in prone contact with the snow, my cries ignored. 
Instantly, I felt an acute loss of confidence, compounded by a searing pain in both thumbs. The loops, which should have been designed to detach themselves like the bindings, put a severe strain on both the intrinsic and extrinsic muscles of each thumb. In both cases, the first dorsal interosseus was irreversibly inflamed, and the flexor pollicis longus was impacted with the extensor pollicis brevis, thereby permanently inhibiting my capacity to reach for my wallet whenever it was my turn to pay for something. I had legitimate hopes that the owners of the resort would be doing that for me from then on, but my case was thrown out by a Swiss-German judge who spoke no English except the phrase, in your dreams. After Clive's massive exploration of everything in Cambridge and getting involved in everything in the university, he went on to do um, a PhD and even tried acting uh, as well as directing the footlights and, and the, the smokers and everything. And, and he also confessed that um, secretly one of his great desires was to be an opera singer. And he, he saw himself as somebody who was going to express himself, you know, um, in a very big way. Yes. Actually, I, I was surprised that he was so good at singing. We do singing here uh, in a, when you get going. And, uh, somebody, <laughs> and he was really good. It's very nice to have somebody with a, a decent voice, you know, cheerfully joining in. But uh, I didn't know he wanted to be an opera singer, but um, why not? Well, it's incredibly difficult to become an opera singer, yes. of course. <laughs> He was, he was a great expert at writing um, columns which have a kind of cumulative effect uh, and being tremendously good at both being the critic and the comedian and also not hurting people as well. Because that's, yeah. that's a yeah. tremendous um, skill Absolutely. as a critic mm. to acquire, mm. isn't yes. it, you know, yeah. to, to, to do yes, that. Yes, I think that's, that's, that is an amplification of what you're saying, yeah. the humour, but also nobody came away feeling kind of humiliated or bruised or got the better of, I don't think, no. out of those. No, it was a real skill. Mm. Let's hear one of the jazz tracks that he really liked. Um, uh, he, he loved jazz, didn't he? I mm. mean, he spent a lot of time uh, going to the Red Lion pub, which during his time at Cambridge was the place where you could go and see mm. uh, live jazz. And jazz was an important part of understanding the Clive James story in Cambridge because it's punctuated with jazz. Now you've chosen some tracks. Um, what are you going to What are you going to give us for that? Anne? So I think anything by Thelonious Monk, who was his favourite. Thank you. 
Arts Roundup with Simon Burton on Cambridge 105 Radio. For those of you who've just joined us, we're looking at the career of Clive James, a remarkable man who had a remarkable life rooted indelibly in Cambridge. Um, he, he says that during his time in Cambridge, when he arrived at Cambridge, he was um, a radical socialist politically. Mm. Um, and at the beginning, that's what he was. But he said that, that the effect of mixing with the Antonians, and he comments... Um, ha, um, had on people like him who came to Cambridge and, and didn't have a, an English background or um, a public school background was, as he said, the idea at Cambridge was to tame the intelligent upstart by getting him addicted to privilege, beautiful architecture and political function, which is what happened to him, or as he put it, or you become treasonable like Kim Philby. And politically, he was a left-winger, but he wasn't a communist. Can you describe him as his politics and, and, and as a social commentator? Well, he's really interesting, I think, because he was very switched on to all the um, uh, to all the goings on in the world. And I was just looking at this poem uh, about Syria, that is absolutely sort of spine-chinglingly awful. And it's called Asthma Unpacks Her Pretty Clothes. And it's about Asma Assad, the the wife of Bashar Assad, the, the, the sort of tyrant of Syria. And Clive was a big admirer of hers initially. He thought that, he told me this, that she was the kind of breakthrough person. She didn't wear a hijab. She was the new liberated uh, uh, sort of uh, Middle Eastern woman. And then in, in the light of what happened with Syria, he, um, he, he, I'll just read you a couple of lines from it. He really changed. Whenever her main residence is now, Asma unpacks her pretty clothes. It takes forever so much silk and cashmere, to be unpeeled from clinging leaves of tissue by her ladies with her perfect hands. She helps. Out there in Syria, the torturers arrive by bus at every change of shift, while victims dangle from their cracking wrists, beaten with iron bars. Young people pray to die soon. This is the Middle Ages, brought back to living death, her husband's doing. The screams will never reach her where she is. Crumbs, yeah. So he he had a lot of compassion by the sounds of it. Yeah. But to go back on... And it wasn't just Clive, as he said himself. um, Vogue did a a whole um, admiring piece about uh, asthma and, you know, British background and all the rest of it. But um, I think if you read that poem, it is just shattering and um so i think he he had this huge imagination and he didn't let it shy away from the realities that are going on in the world Mm -hmm. which you know speaking for myself i tend to you know look away and um he didn't look away so politically um, i think that's where he was at are there particular experiences you had with him that made a big impression upon you yeah, I think um, really just being in a, f- a friendly group together, like you know, like we are when we we meet and have lovely, lovely dinners. Somebody able to relax into it, not being overly dominating of the group. So in a sense, nothing outstanding, but 
really rather nice, sing, literally singing along and um, just being extremely nice to people. Mm. In a, but, you know, he was so regretful because he couldn't keep going as much as he, he wanted mm. to. I think he was a very competitive person. <laughs> Funnily <laughs> enough, this rather beautiful uh, young friend of mine, was, uh, she's a poet, and she was telling me that uh, Clive called on her a day when she had this very glamorous Irish poet around. And um, when he went off, um, my, my friend was saying, gosh, isn't he glamorous and so tall? I was saying to her, I don't think he's that tall. Is he? More <laughs> my height. And she said, no, he's not. Actually, he's six feet four. I, said, I don't think he's six feet four. Can't be. No, I think he's just more or less... More or less about a bit more like me, but I think it's so like me. Here, here he is making fun of that subject. All um, right. The whole subject of, of being a, um, a dashing person, right. basically. <laughs> I hope I'm not stepping on Daniel Craig's toes if I let it slip that I'm being considered to play the starring role in the next James Bond film. It's going to be called Parabola of Solicitude, and the script is on my desk in front of me now. I have no problem with the action sequences. At one point, Bond has to run up the side of the Washington Monument before punching a fatal hole in a helicopter full of Chinese assassins, but the stunt double can handle that, just as he will have to handle the bit on page three where Bond is described as getting up out of an armchair suddenly. I don't do suddenly anymore, but I think the producers know that. Nor do I have any problem with the sex scenes. Bond has been slower off the mark in that area lately, and I know just how he feels. In fact, the script seems to contain no sex at all, except a mention in the last scene of an old woman who applies for a job cleaning Bond's flat, and she turns out to be the granddaughter of a hotel receptionist he knew quite well in Havana during the Spanish-American War in 1898. No, my problem with Parabola of Solicitude starts with the villain. He's a Russian oligarch called Oleg Garkov, and he couldn't be more boring. It's not just that his plan to destroy civilization is boring. The plans of Bond villains to destroy civilization have always been boring. The stolen atomic bombs, the microwave satellite, I mean, save us, but don't hurry. Now that we know that within ten years there'll be nothing left of the inhabited world except a few hundred thousand windmills sticking out of the ocean, where's the threat in diverting the water supply of South America? Every Sunday night at home, before the bins are collected on Monday morning, I get accused by my assembled family of destroying civilization by not paying enough attention to separating potato peelings from excess plastic packaging. Who isn't threatening to destroy civilization? So he had a, um, a more serious side, which is in, in many ways, to him, was more important than the humorous that um, the public knew him at. And that, 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 um, that all stems from the fact that... Um, he, he says in the drift of his books, you know, that, that his father died when he was very young. Mm. Um, James's father, Albert Arthur James, was taken prisoner by the Japanese during World War Two, And although he survived the prisoner of war camp, he died when an American B-24, carrying him and other freed allied POWs, ran into the tail of a typhoon en route to Manila and crashed into the mountains of the south of southeastern Taiwan. James, who had later state that his life's works originated after his father's death, um, uh, was brought up by his mother, um, Minora May, 
uh, who was a factory worker in the Sydney suburbs of Kugara and, and J- Janali, living some years um, with his English maternal grandfather. So that was a really profound thing in his life, wasn't it? When oh, his yeah. Father died. Yeah. 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 Well, he said to me, his, um, uh, when he was growing up, the whole of uh, Sydney was full of men in uniforms. Fortunately, not Japanese uniforms. <laughs> but he would be going around with his mother, looking up at these, you know, Australian heroes with their slouch hats and thinking, where's my father? Of course, he never mm. knew him. And I, I said to him, that must be dreadful for you. He says, well, no, for my mother... It must have been so awful. But to grow up without a father in those days perhaps um, wasn't as unusual as it might be, but mm-hmm. I think it must have been very hard. But he had an adventurous boyhood, and, and he became the school clown and someone who was very popular for his humour uh, very early on in his life. Yeah, um, Obviously, um, at the end of his... Um, his his t- his teens. He became the editor of of the Sydney University newspaper. I think mm. it was called the Fellowship, and that was the the beginning of his um, adult life. And he became uh, a very good interviewer um, and reviewer. You know, um, very early on. So yeah. his journalistic career was extremely interesting. Let's hear a clip about his early journalistic career, shall we? I suppose I was lucky in that I wasn't daunted by what I should have been daunted by, which was half a dozen editors of various magazines asking me to do a book review all at once. Instead of saying yes to one of them and no to five of them, I said yes to all of them. (laughs) And I would be hitting five or six deadlines a week. And these are 1,000 or 2,000 word pieces. And that meant writing all night. Mm. And that's the way I stayed alive when I began as a professional writer. And I wonder if I could do it now. In fact, I don't have to wonder. I couldn't. Mm. It would be physically impossible to me. But if I hadn't broken into Fleet Street, I would have gone on doing that for Grub Street. What happened to me, there was a one among the editors who asked me to write a book of you, was Terence Kilmartin at The Observer. The first review I wrote for him, he wouldn't publish, and he brought me into his office and showed me why. And he went through it with his blue pencil, and he pointed out all the bits that were straining for effect and so on. Mm. And he said, don't you want to rewrite this and so on? And I realized with a growing surge of happiness that he wouldn't be doing all this unless he planned to publish it after all, as Mm. long as we fixed Mm. it. Mm. So he fixed it, and he printed it, and he printed more, and eventually the newspaper asked me to write a weekly column on television, which is the beginning of my career in Fleet Street. But that's... It was my career in Fleet Street that kept me alive. I don't think I would have been able to keep it up just writing book reviews. His poetry became the, the great love of his life, as, as the most important thing to be um, a poet. And this is a comment from him about his early poetry. The bad person was what I wanted to get into my poetry, but I had to face the fact that the kind of poetry I was finally getting published was mainly the entertaining uh, show business stuff, which I didn't think was at the heart of me. I still had the sheaf of unpublished poems. It was growing, in fact. It was a manuscript. It was my book of poetry, and nobody wanted it. At the time, we're talking about the early 70s, I was still stuck with this unpublishable book of poetry that proved it was serious because it wasn't entertaining. And the the trouble with that book is nobody wanted it. It bounced off the desk of every poetry editor in England, quite often with an encouraging remark, and once with that fatal remark saying, we would love to do this, and I'm going to persuade the board that we should do it. It's the kind of uh, acceptance that's a deferred rejection. 
It was his you know, core desire to be a poet, but at the same time he wasn't getting um, published at the beginning because it took him quite a long time to achieve the success that he did. What did he say to you about being a poet, Anne? Well, I just felt that it was his manifest destiny in his own mind. And really, he never said anything about it, but these huge tones were appearing. And he obviously felt very pleased with... Uh, the. I, th- I was so impressed that he had uh, poems published right up until the end of his life, and these collected poems. But he had quite a few little collections of poetry. And um, Mary Beard, I didn't a little um, piece about Clive. Mary Beard was saying how amazing that he's kind of working right to the end of his life. In fact, he wrote a poem about the that little um, Acer tree, which he was saying goodbye to the world, and then the actual Acer tree died. <laughs> and he was still there. OK, do you want to read us a, a poem or two, Anne? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, certainly. This is reflections in an extended kitchen, which you're looking at really through the window on the right-hand side there. Mm -hmm. Um, Late summer charms the birds out of the trees onto our lawn, where the cat gets them. Aware of this, but not unmanned, Matisse makes the whole room as sexy as the girl. Distributed voluptuousness, he said, matching the decor to her lazy gaze. Just put me on the first flight to Morocco. You see what I see? Feathers on the grass. Nothing so sordid in an Henri's backyard, where coloured shapes may touch, but not to crush. Look at that death trap out there lined with roses. We grew a fire-free zone with fertiliser. Caught on the ground like the Egyptian Air Force, a wrecked bird on its back appears outraged. It could have been a contender. What a world of slang-bang stuff to float one fantasy. Among her figured curtains, blobs for flowers, lolling, unlocked in filmy harem pants. Where did we see her first? That place they called Leningrad. She looked like history's cure. And even he could see that when he turned an artful blank back on his wife and child. They were arrested, leaving him to paint in peace a world with no Gestapo in it. A dream that came true. Agonies recede. And if his vision hid harsh facts from him, it sharpens them for us. Best to believe he served an indispensable ideal. Douceur de vivre. On a heroic scale, heaven on earth, the land of Oubladi, Cloud Nine and Shangri-La hooked on the wall as bolt holes for the brain, square wishing wells. Suppose that like his brush, my pen could speak volumes. Our cat might stay in shape to pounce, but only on the arm of that soft chair. 
use it in now and where you would lie lulled an ageless in-house odalis coucher never to be less languorous than this always dissolving in the air around you reality's cruel purr with your sweet whisper and nothing would be terrible again nor ever was the fear that we once felt for daughters fallen ill or just an hour late home it never happened that dumb bird stayed in its tree and I was true to you Reflections in an extended kitchen, um, yeah. which is... Why did you choose that poem? Well, it, it was written uh, from the house opposite, where Clive had had to go when he basically was kicked out of his house <laughs> that he shared with his wife. And that those last four words, and I was true to you, it was the idea of the world changing... Um, if, if not that, then this, or you could say, change one thing, change everything. And um, it, it's a rather profound poem where he goes through um, the works of Matisse, but points out to us, which I didn't know, that he uh, abandoned his wife in, mm-hmm. in Nazi-occupied France and vanished off. You're going to give us another one called Young Lady in Black, got it? Yeah, I find this quite quite tricky, but um, it obviously alludes to the dreams of the Russian Revolution. Young Lady in Black. The Russian poets dreamed, but dreamed too soon, of a red-lipped, chalk-white face framed in black fur, symbol of what their future would be like. Free, lyrical and elegant like her in the love songs of their climacteric. I met you before I met you and you were the way you are now in these photographs. Your father took outside the hermitage. You stand on snow and more snow in the air arrives in powdered forms like rice through space. It hurts to know the colour of your hair is blacker than your hat. Such is the price figments exact for turning real. We care too much. I too was tricked by history. But at least I saw you close enough to touch even as time made touch impossible. The poets never met their richly dressed princess of liberty. The actual girl was lost to them as all the rest was lost. Only their ghosts attended the snowfall. The camera stopped when you stood in the square. Fiction made fact as long last and too late. My grief would look like nothing in their eyes. I hear them in the photographs. The breath of sorrow stirs the coal dust while hope dies. The worst way in the vision of rebirth. As by whole generations they arise from pitted shallows in the permafrost and storm the winter palace from the sky, each spirit shivering in a bead of light. They fall again for what they once foretold. For you, dawn burning through its cloak of night, they miss what I miss, and a millionfold it all came true. 
It's there in black and white, but your mouth is the colour of their blood. Crumbs, that's a mm. very, uh, very moving poem. Mm. Absolutely wonderful. Um, okay, so um, it, it must have been really great to have been part of this um, this absolutely fascinating um, and charmed life that um, Clive James um, led. You, you, you must feel um, that you were part of something amazing, really. Well, I think that, you know, in a very, very <laughs> small add-on way. But, you you know, you don't know, do you, when somebody's right at the end of of everything, which he knew mm. very well, perhaps little, the sort of more minor friendships are more significant mm. than uh, than when you're in your pomp, mm. knowing all these fabulously um, glamorous people. And obviously, um, in the end, you know, after having this brilliant career that um, most people were absolutely astonished by, quite frankly. Mm. You know, um, he, he very sadly died of um, leukaemia mm. um, in 2019. That must have been a terrible blow for his family. You know? Yes. Yeah. Um, to, to, to see... Because, I mean, he, he, he carried on writing right until the end, didn't he? Yeah, right until the mm-hmm. end. Mm-hmm. Although, because he was so much watched by the media, his poor daughter... Uh, once I ran into her and she said, you know, I think the media have got the wrong end of the stick because, you know, Dad's still alive and they've decided he's died. It's really quite <laughs> distressing. So, I mean, it's, you're, you're very much, once you're in the public eye, you know, you don't go out of it even though you're Absolutely. losing your your um, faculties. Well, I saw him right at the end of his life in the street party at the end of the street. Oh, yeah. Um, and he was, you know, um, he sat there with his glass of wine, smiling and making fun. And obviously, you know, he, he was yeah. very ill at the time. Um, and he was that um, warm person right to yeah. the end of his life. Um, and it's a life that I think needs to be toasted and celebrated to his, his warm wit. Um, and perhaps we can play... One of my favourite poets by Marvel, and he's one of my favourite poets anyway. My love is of a birth as rare, as tis for objects strange and high. It was begotten by despair upon impossibility. Magnanimous despair alone could show me so divine a thing, where feeble hope could ne'er have flown, but vainly flapped her tinsel wing. (laughs) And yet I quickly might arrive where my extended soul is fixed, but fate does iron wedges drive and always crowds herself betwixt. For fate with jealous eye doth see two perfect loves, nor lets them close. Their union would her ruin be, and her tyrannic power depose. And therefore her decrees of steel us at the distant poles have placed, though life's whole world on us doth wheel, not by themselves to be embraced. Unless the giddy heaven fall, and earth some new convulsion tear, and us to join, the world should all be crammed into a planisphere. As lines, so loves, oblique, may well themselves in every angle greet, but ours, so truly parallel, though infinite, can never meet. Therefore the love which us doth bind, but fate so enviously debars, is the conjunction of the mind, and opposition of the stars. And I hope we've we've done a reasonable job in sort of 
looking at the whole Clive James. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Cambridge Arts Roundup with Anne Garvey and Phil Day. I'm Simon Burton and I hope you've enjoyed being with us and we'll tune in again soon. If you want to delve into more about the extraordinary life of Clive James, it can all be found on clivejames.com.